from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Leanne Elif. Leanne was raised as a Baha'i in Northern Virginia near Washington, D.C. Her career path has been somewhat unconventional, starting off in engineering at Motorola, jumping tracks to human communication and a short teaching job at a local community college, and finally leading to her starting a business of her own, creating Baha'i audiobooks. Today she explains what led to her decision to start that business and what kinds of things she had to learn in order to take it from an idea to reality. I started the interview by asking Leanne where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I was born in upstate New York and I moved to Virginia when I was four. So I grew up in northern Virginia from the time that I was four until my sophomore year in college. I spent one year down in Florida, but that was, that was just sort of a short transfer for my dad. The rest of the time was just in northern Virginia, where it was a very isolated community in terms of the Baha'i faith. We were really the only Baha'is in, um, in the town where I grew up. And really in the whole county, most of the other Baha'is lived about an hour away. So it was pretty isolated growing up. Your parents were Baha'is, and you were raised a Baha'i. Oh, yes, yes. I was raised a Baha'i. My parents were both first-generation Baha'is. What were your interests growing up? I was a real bookworm when I was growing up. I loved to read, and I read a whole, mostly fantasy, fiction. I read a lot of things. That was my thing growing up. And in middle school and high school, I started playing in the band. I played flute. Uh, helped me make it through the angst of teenage years. So I was grateful mm-hmm. for that. What was it like being a Baha'i growing up? My mother is Chinese. My father is Caucasian. We grew up in northern Virginia out in the sticks. So we were the only Chinese family, even though my dad wasn't Chinese. We, we were the only family with any Chinese in it, and we were also the only Baha'i family, so I always felt a little different, a little on the outside, a little bit don't fit in. So it was a little bit hard for me growing up. Not that anybody ever teased me or mocked me or anything. It was just I was always aware that I was different. So for me, it was always a matter of trying to fit in. And I think that because I didn't have a strong Baha'i identity, it was probably even a little harder, just because there weren't a lot of Baha'is around. I didn't have a strong Baha'i school to go to. Um, we did do Baha'i classes for off and on throughout my childhood, but it wasn't a coherent, solid curriculum. I, I always knew that, that I was Baha'i, and that there was, from what I had learned of other religions, a lot of it was confusing to me, get based on my own perspective. So I, I knew that I would end up becoming a Baha'i more so than I was when I was a child. So I wasn't real active as a child. Uh, when I was in college, though, Baha'u'llah has told us that when things are going great, 
it's easy to forget about God. It's easy to forget about that He created us. And it isn't until things go really bad that we turn to Him and ask for help. And I think it wasn't until I went to college that I started having things go bad, and my parents weren't there to help me and fix things for me, and I had to deal with them on my own. That was when I started praying. That was when I started turning to God. And, in fact, I had actually chosen to go to school at Northwestern University, in part because it was right by the Baha'i Temple, and because I wanted, I think on some level, I really wanted to draw closer to the Baha'i faith, and I I didn't know how at that time. So even though I was raised a Baha'i, you still have to find Baha'u'llah on your own. You still have to find your faith on your own. It's always a, it's always a journey for everyone. And and for you, claiming the Baha'i faith for yourself ended up being while you were in college. It was a journey of baby steps. Mm-hmm. I mean, you 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 take out, you take on as much as you can at any given time. I mean, you don't feed a baby steak, right? You right. feed a baby baby food. So everybody moves on at their own pace. Do you feel comfortable describing some of the problems that you're going through that caused you to really turn toward God during that time in your life? I had a roommate situation where I had decided to live with this one girl who was my friend in the spring. When we came back in the fall, we were going to get an apartment together. But over the summer, she went out of the country with a bunch of friends, and she came back. She had this other group of friends who were into a lot of different things that I wasn't into. And I, she invited this one of these friends to come live with us. And then when I thought it was going to be her and I being friends, it ended up being her and this other girl being friends. And then it just ended up being this kind of unfortunate situation where we didn't get along anymore and it wasn't comfortable. When you're not comfortable in the house that you live in, you don't feel happy and peaceful there, then it's difficult. Right. And it wasn't like it was a big drama that was going to hit the news. It was just girl drama, and it was enough for me to become very depressed. So that was when I turned to prayer, and I needed to move out of that situation and into a new situation, and it was just stressful. It's just college. (laughs) Right. So what did you do after college? Well, in college I had gotten a degree in engineering, so I was looking for an engineering degree, and of course that was at the, you know, if you call it the the top or the bottom of the market. The, the, we, were, we were just going into a recession, I think, at the time. It was 1993. There weren't a lot of jobs out there. I was actually planning on going to graduate school because I figured I wouldn't find one when I actually finally did down in Arizona. So I took that job and moved to Arizona. I've been here ever since. So what kind of work did you do? I worked for Motorola for 10 years, and I, was, well, I had a mechan- um, materials engineering degree. Yeah. yeah, I was there for 10 years until I had my two kids and decided I needed to stay home with them. How long did you stay home for? Well, that's kind of an interesting question. I'm still home, but now I have a home business. I decided that rather than going in back and working outside of the house, I really wanted to find something that I could do that would serve the Baha'i faith, that would help humanity, that would serve my family, and the, what I came up with was recording audiobooks for the Baha'i faith. And so how did you end up being attracted to doing that? I've been addicted to audiobooks for a very long time now. Uh, I just okay. love audiobooks. Mm-hmm. I love the convenience that they offer. I love that I can listen to them while I walk, while I hike, while I work out, while I stand in line, while I drive in my car. 
I just love audiobooks. So I went looking for Baha'i audiobooks to listen to, and I couldn't find any. And I was, I was crushed. I said, I can't believe that there aren't any Baha'i audiobooks. Well, I, I found out eventually that they did have the, the Center for the Blind recordings online for, available for free. And I thought, wow, that's fabulous. And I was so excited. And I downloaded Paris Talks. And I was, went for a walk with my headphones on, and the first thing it started doing was reading table of contents. I thought, what? So I was going to try to skip the table of contents, but the way it's tracked, it's tracked for the audio cassettes that it was originally on, so the 45-minute audio cassettes. Mm-hmm. So to push skip ahead, you end up skipping 45 minutes into the book. Mm-hmm. So I, I just found it a sort of a frustrating experience being somebody who listens to modern audiobooks and being able to listen to them my way, this was sort of frustrating. So the whole time I'm listening, I am saying to myself, oh, I could do this better. Every once in a while, the, the reader would mess up, and they didn't edit it out, they left it in. Or the reader would turn their mouth away from the, the microphone for a second, and I missed a few words. And I kept thinking, oh, gosh, I could do this better, I could do this better, and it, there was really no reason for me to say that since I had no background in recording. I had no background in audiobook reading or anything like that. I just kept saying to myself, I can do this better. And then one day on this walk that I took every day, I said, maybe you want me to try to do this better. And I just had this feeling inside that's like, yes. So I had this crazy idea, and I ran it by my husband. And he's like, well, if you think it's a good idea, look into it. Uh, I'm a firm believer that when you're on the right path, your steps will be guided, and it just felt like my steps were guided all the way. I, I really couldn't have stuck with this. Starting from where I started, I could never have ended up where I'm at without having had divine guidance along the way. Yeah, so walk us through all of those steps for us. Well, the first thing my husband said, if you're really serious about this, then write a business plan. Tell, look into the business, look into the market, and see if there is a viable market there. I've never written a business plan. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what that meant. So I went to the library. I checked out a bunch of books. I started looking into it. I started putting together a document on just on Word. And very slowly, things started to sort of fall in line. I'm writing this business plan. I've never done it before. My friend says, hey, you know, there's a score over at the Better Business Bureau. It's the, the core of retired executives. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a bunch of people who've worked out in business who volunteer at SCORE to help people start new businesses, people like me. So I called them up, and they assigned a counselor to me, and I showed up, and I just told them what I wanted to do. And I said, is that crazy? And they said, no, I don't think that's crazy. I think that sounds really interesting. Here's what you need to do. You know. So he, I met with that counselor several times over a three-, four-month five, six-month period. I don't remember how long it took me to write it. Long time, though. And each step, he helped me through it. He's like, okay, now you need to look at the market that's available, and to do that, you'll need to figure out how many Baha'is are in the world, what's the demographic for the people who are going to listen to audiobooks of the Baha'i community, how many do you think would be interested in reading the audiobooks? And so I had to march through this very long and rigid, not rigid, but predefined format to try to figure out at the end whether or not I thought this was going to be a viable enterprise. And at the time, I was staying home with my kids, and it was something to do in the evenings. 
with my time, so it was okay. I didn't, didn't mind. I wasn't supposed to be earning any money at that point. After SCORE, we kind of got to the point where we said, okay, it's not going to be a big living, but I can, I, I can make a small living doing this. And the nice thing about it was that it allowed me the flexibility to work from home so that if my kids got sick, I could be home with them. If they went to bed, I can go work at night without having to go anywhere. So there was a lot of, of, of things that was desirable about it, and that was you know, why, another reason why I was able to stick to it was that it's just if I could make it work, it would be perfect. So let's see, after I finished the business plan and we said, okay, give it a green light, let's go, then the next step was, okay, I have to have a home studio. To have a home studio, that means you have to have a room, and the room has to be sound-treated. So that was my next journey. I had to go do a lot of research online to say, how do you treat a room for recording? You have to dampen a lot of the echoes, and you have to dampen the high-frequency echoes with this kind, and you have to dampen the low-frequency reflections with this kind. And so that was another journey. And we ended up making a whole bunch of sound panels and mounting them on the walls so that we could absorb the reflections in the room. Turns out my room is perfect because it's this five-sided thing with a pitched ceiling that there are no 90-degree angles. So one thing that I learned when I was doing the research was that the 90 degrees 90-degree angles are bad, and parallel walls are bad. So my floor and my ceiling are not parallel, and only short sections of opposing walls are parallel. So actually, I, had, I got lucky. My room is ideal in terms of shape. So then acoustic-wise, it was just a matter of killing some of the echoes. And we ended up making, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine flat sound panels that we mounted on the walls, and then we created this large monolith that has a, a bass trap built into it that I actually set my microphone up in front of, and that, that records the reflections that come off my back. So there's nothing coming off the back into the microphone. So we had to go through this whole journey of learning how acoustics work. That was actually kind of a lot of fun. It, it sounded so geeky and, and <laughs> it was so funny, but we did enjoy doing that part of the research. How long did that take you? Oh, everything takes several months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was well, probably several months four is, months. Well, four months of is, work. Yeah, four months doesn't seem like. We had to like order the soundproofing material. I forget what they call it. Rock wool, I think, is what it was called. We ordered that online and had it shipped to me. And then we had to buy the acoustic fabric to cover it, which is like speaker fabric, but yeah. for some reason it's acoustically transparent. I don't know why. <laughs> and you had this. You happened to have this room in your house, vacant. Yes, we had one. We had a. I had a room in in the house that was my, quote-unquote, my den, my office, mm-hmm. that I had used for my master's degree. My husband had built it for me. I told him, <laughs> I said, everybody else has a room in this house, not me. Why don't I have a room? You have the whole garage. I want a room, too. So he built out this whole den for me. It's full of cabinets and bookshelves and a desk, and there's room for the printer. And it's a fabulous setup. It's really grown with me as I've changed it, my my vision of who I wanted to be when I grow up. I thought I was going to be a writer for a while. Mm-hmm. Thought I was going to be a researcher, a teacher. I've done a lot of little things when I since I've gra- uh, since I <laughs> graduated from working. So I had the room. So what's the, what was the next journey after uh, setting up your uh, sound room? Once we had the sound all set up, we had to get the equipment set up. I had to research 
everything, starting from what kind of a computer is best for recording, because you can't have you have to have enough RAM, you have to have enough hard drive, you have to have I mean sound files take up a lot of room, so you have to have a really large hard drive. Uh, we have to oh it has to be quiet. You you don't want to have the computer fan noise in the background of your recording. You had to have a very quiet computer, and how do you accomplish that? Well, you can put it in the other room, or you can find spend an extra amount of money to buy a super quiet computer, or you can do what we did, which was to build an isolation box. We, we actually have a large black box made out of MDF that's it's lined on the inside with acoustic foam. It's got fans in there that blow past the acoustic foam so that it dampens some of the noise of those fans as well. All of the research that went into that box, my husband built that for me. Then we had to have uh, an audio interface, which is where the sound gets captured from the microphone, which was another thing that I had to get. We had to get the microphone, the monitors, the audio interface. They all have to play well together. But just the microphone alone, I mean, just trying to figure out what microphone. A lot of the books suggest, well, hey, just go and rent a bunch of microphones. Well, in Arizona, they say, rent a microphone? Are you kidding? It doesn't work that way. So I didn't have the chance to go out and try a bunch of microphones. I just kind of had to do the research and, and keep my fingers crossed that the one that I picked would be okay. Okay, so you got all that set up. And then, uh, and then what was the next stage in your development there? Well, then I had to start reading and uh-huh. recording my voice. Every step was a little bit scary. If you've ever recorded your voice and or heard yourself recorded and you listen to it and you think, oh, gosh, that's what I sound like? Well, if I was going to do this, I had to get over that fear. I also had to learn how to read for, in a way that would be pleasing to other people to listen to for a long time. So I had to find, if I could, a voice coach. And it turns out there's one. Well, I'm sure there's more than one in all of Phoenix, but the one name that kept coming up happened to live very close to where I live. So I went and had a few sessions with her, just told her what I was doing, and she's like, well, okay, we can talk. So from there, it was just a few sessions, and then I started working on my own and recording my voice and editing it. That was the next step, was learning how to use the software. I had done a little research online. They said, oh, well, this one's free and this one's free. And then there was the one that came with my, my hardware, my audio interface, my Focusrite. And so I ended up using that one because it had more bells and whistles. But it was like using a blowtorch where I really only needed a match. It was, it was a very powerful software, but more than I needed. So it, it took a while to figure out how to use it. So that was how the, it was Cubase is what I ended up using for that first book. Yeah, it had a pretty steep learning curve on it, but I, I managed to make it work. Yeah. And my first book was The Advent of Divine Justice. What points did you learn from the voice teacher about, about reading? I learned that microphone placing is extremely important. How far you are from the mic versus how close you are to the mic gives a very different mood. I did a lot of reading of books by voiceover professionals. I learned that there's a lot of problems when you, I mean, you can, you, there's a lot of things that you can do wrong when you're in front of a mic. You can, if you're too close, you can pop your P's and it, it, it's very unpleasant to the ears. Or you can have sibilance in your S's. Or you can, you, you never want to touch the mic because that'll make a, make a noise on the mic. Pacing is an issue. You need to read naturally 
and with expression. So you don't want to read just monotone because nobody wants to listen to Domingue talking monotone. <laughs> you need to read expressively. You need to, to read as if you're just talking to someone so that it doesn't sound like you're reading from a book. Those are some of the things that I learned, some of the basic things. You mentioned your first book was The Advent of Divine Justice by Shoghi Effendi. Can you explain to folks who Shoghi Effendi is in, in relationship to the Baha'i faith? Sure. Shoghi Effendi is actually the grandson of Abdu'l-Bahá, and Abdu'l-Bahá is the son of Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah was the founder of the Baha'i faith, so when he passed away, he appointed his son, Abdu'l-Bahá, to be the leader of the faith. And when Abdu'l-Bahá passed away, he appointed Shoghi Effendi to be the guardian of the faith, to look after things after he passed on. And Shoghi Effendi was significant in that there was never an intention to create a family dynasty. It was his intention to create an elected body that would become the, the leaders of the faith. And that became the Universal House of Justice, which was outlined by Baha'u'llah and described by Abdu'l-Bahá, but actually formed by the actions of Shoghi Effendi. The advent of divine justice, what it is, is a letter that Shoghi Effendi wrote to the Baha'is of the United States and Canada, which was a letter of encouragement. It's a very significant letter for the Baha'is in that sense, that it was so, so encouraging. Oh, and it basically it said, the first part of it is, hey, you've done a great job so far, look at what you've accomplished. And then the rest of it is, okay, let's talk about what you have left to do. So it, it does talk about things to come in the future, and I think a lot of that's relevant now. So it's why the book is relevant to Baha'is today, which is why I chose to record it. This was most on your mind for being the first book that you recorded. Yes. You had mentioned earlier that listening to audio tapes that were converted to probably CD and it was still somewhat of a serial uh, experience rather than a more, I guess, interactive experience. Can you explain a little bit on how you changed the organization of how one does an audio book today versus back when they were cassette tapes that somebody just threw into the uh, cassette deck? Well, my first goal was that the sound quality had to be of professional quality. There was no point in doing this, in my opinion, if it wasn't going to be on par with the audiobooks that you can get from the library. It had to be of exceptional quality. That meant that I had to have consistency in pacing, in tone. Um, I had to make sure that from the beginning to the end it was consistent, that the packaging itself was of high quality. I mean, this is something that requires dignity and respect. So that was my first goal was it has to be of the highest quality. After the quality, then it becomes more of the experience. So... I don't read the table of contents. I don't read the index. I'm not going to read the page numbers as I'm going through. Those are some things that have changed. I create tracks so that if you are listening on a CD, it's a five-minute track. So if you need to skip, if you do your chapter skip ahead, if you hit that on your phone or your, your MP3 player, you're only going to go five minutes in, not 45. So you have more control over your listening experience. I also offer it in multiple formats. I have the CDs because, let's face it, most of us are still pretty old school, especially those of us who listen to audiobooks. 
So we want the physical CDs. I offer those. But I also offer them as, an, as a download through this Voices Divine website. So I offer the flexibility of being able to do it either as a CD or as a digital download. How long did it take you to record Advent of Divine Justice? It's hard to say because I recorded it several times. <laughs> I started in the middle knowing that that would probably take me a while to get my groove on so that when I got to the end it would sound different than it did at the beginning. So what I did was I, I started in the middle, read to the end, wrapped around to the beginning again, and once I did that it sounded so different that I just kept going. Uh, so I re-recorded the whole thing, basically. The whole effort took about a year because mm-hmm. it had to, I had to have not just the audio prepared, but then I had to design the graphics for the CD cover, the disc face. I had to find packaging. I had to figure out how to do um, sourcing and manufacture. It, it turned into this whole big journey just because... I've never done any of that. I, I've never worked in manufacturing on the wholesale end. I've done a little retail work, but nothing like this. So it was a real learning journey, and that whole thing just took a really long time. I think my second, my second time through won't take as long, although it's taking longer than I expected. What title are you doing now? Right now I'm working on The Divine Art of Living. And why did you choose that title? The Divine Art of Living is this great book. It's a compilation. It's not just the writings of one person. It's, it's got selected quotes from the writings of Baha'u'llah, Abdu'l-Baha, and the Bab, all, and a few others sprinkled in. And they address the different aspects that we have to address in life. It talks about health and healing. It talks about practical applications of the spiritual life. The Advent of Divine Justice is a wonderful book, and it, it's an important work, and we really should all know it and understand it because it has so much relevance for today. But it's a difficult book to understand, and it's not for everybody. You know, It's not for people who are just learning about the Baha'i Faith because a lot of it they just don't understand the context. They'd have to understand a lot more to, to get it. Not that they can't read it. They can. But The Divine Art of Living is for everybody. It's a perfect book for somebody, whether you're a Baha'i who's been a Baha'i for 50 years, whether you're, you've been a Baha'i for six months, whether you've just heard about the Baha'i faith. It's a great book to get a good sampling of what is the Baha'i attitude towards life after death or what happens after death. For me, I went from this one book that was very specific to Baha'is to this book that I felt like would be much more broadly useful and helpful and enjoyable. Okay, you had mentioned Baha'u'llah, Abdu'l-Baha, and then you also mentioned the figure of the Bab. Can you explain to folks who the Bab was? Sure. The Bab is a title. It's actually spelled B-A-B, not B-O-B. It's a title that means the gate. And if you read in the Bible, he, they talk about the return of Christ. He shall enter in through the gate. Well, the Bab was the gate, and his role was to Baha'u'llah what John the Baptist was to Jesus Christ. The Bob came to prepare everybody for the coming of someone after him who would be greater than him. He came to say, hey, get ready. He's coming. He's already here. He's among us. Make sure that you're ready at all times because he's here. Get ready. 
he brought a religion of his own, the Babi faith. It was never his intention that that faith should endure forever independently. It was his intention that, that the Babi should be looking for the next one who turned out to be Baha'u'llah. So his was, his was a role of preparation. Now, it must have been quite a different experience doing the audiobook for Divine Art of Living versus the audiobook for the Advent of Divine Justice. Is that true? <laughs> wow, yeah, it is. It was a very different experience. Shoghi Effendi was educated in Oxford, I think. He learned mm-hmm. English in Oxford. His English was impeccable. His first language was Persian and, and Arabic first languages were Persian and Arabic, but he wanted his goal in life, his only goal in life when he was growing up, was to learn English well enough that he could perfectly translate the Baha'i writings from the original Arabic and Persian into English. So that was his, his whole ambition in life, was just to be a translator. So when he was actually appointed to be the guardian of the faith, he was quite floored and shocked. But in his preparation to become a translator, he learned English so well that when he writes, he writes at the level that he learned English, which is a very high level, very sophisticated level, and his sentences are very long. His, his sentence structure is so complex that a whole paragraph might be one sentence, which makes for a very challenging read, let me tell you. But it's all perfectly technically correct. If you break the sentences apart, you'll see that they are all grammatically perfect. But that doesn't mean that they aren't challenging to read. And that was part of the reason why I had to reread it so many times was sometimes it took me that many times just to figure out what he was saying in a sentence. And once I understood what he was saying, then I could read it with an inflection that would encourage understanding as opposed to have somebody saying, huh? Which I did first a few times through. Yeah. Divine Art of Living is totally different because it's a collection of writings from different people who had number one, different writing styles in and of themselves, but even within themselves. So Abdu'l-Bahá sometimes spoke in a very elevated style, but sometimes he spoke as if he was at a, just giving a speech because a lot of the writings that we have from him are transcriptions of, this, of talks that he gave. So some of them need to be read in one way and some of them need to be read in another. They're all a little different. So it's going to be interesting as, as I put it all together to see if the, if the styles that I chose to read mesh and blend. How would you read differently if it was a talk given versus just a writing that he wrote? Well, if it was a speech, then I would read it as if he was speaking. If, if I was standing up in front of a group of people and giving a talk, then it would sound different than if I was reciting, say, from the Bible for some people. Mm-hmm. When you recite from the Bible, it has significance, the words themselves have the significance in them. When you give a speech, the meaning comes from also from the inflection behind it. There's also some prayers in the Divine Art of Living. So reading a prayer is sometimes very different than reading guidance, for example. Mm -hmm. So consort with all men, O people of Baha, in a spirit of friendliness and fellowship. So that would be a little bit different than, O God, refresh and gladden my spirit. Purify my heart. Illumine my powers. So that would be a prayer. A prayer would be different than, this is how you should live your life. I can see the difference there. You're still in the process of completing Divine Art of Living? Yes. I've recorded it. I am editing it right now. 
after I finish editing it, I have to go back through and do some retakes on stuff that I wasn't happy with. I'll have to edit that and cut it in. I'll have to design the artwork for the disc face and the box, the CD box. Then it'll be, after that, it'll be available. Do you have another title in mind that, uh, that you want to do next after The Divine Art of Living? Yes, the next book that I want to work on is called Thief in the Night. It is a book written quite a little while ago by a man named William Sears, who was a very well-known Baha'i. What it is, it's, it's written like a mystery, where it's, it's his, William Sears' exploration of discovering the Baha'i faith. His editor gave him a list of titles that was headlines, newspaper headlines. He works in the newspaper. And they said, you know, these would be some crazy headlines if you read, read these in the paper, wouldn't they? And one of them was Christ Returns. And so he's like, well, yeah, that would be quite crazy, wouldn't it? That would really get everybody stirred up. But he started doing some research. The book is just the journey of his research. He went through the Bible and said, what were the proofs that were listed in the, in the Bible to look for when the return of Christ came? And he goes through and he said, well, gee, I just found this person named Baha'u'llah, and he claims that he is the return of Christ. What are his claims, and do, does he fit the proofs that Jesus left for us in the Bible? Thief in the Night is this wonderful book. It's especially wonderful for people who are exploring the Baha'i faith to walk through somebody else's journey of search. And why did you pick this book for your next project? It's a great book. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good reason. (laughs) How long ago was it that you first conceived of this plan to, this business plan to create an audiobook business? Three years ago. Yeah, so you've been moving pretty fast since you conceived of this project. Yes and no. I'd like to move faster. My husband thinks I should be putting out six books a year. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I think you'd need an army of people to do that. (laughs) Well, that's kind of the point, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I'm not complaining. Um, My husband has been so supportive of me in this venture. He puts in money when I need him to put in money. He challenges me to come up with the best solutions. He challenges me to make sure everything is of the highest quality. He never lets me settle for second best. I mean, I couldn't have done this without him. He's really the other half of this venture. Now, if people want to find The Advent of Divine Justice, the audio book, where would they go to, to find it? There's two places you can go. The Baha'i Distribution Service is the main source for the United States, and they're the only retail source right now. You can get that www.bahaibookstore.com, and it will. Uh, if you look for Advent of Divine Justice, it will come up. It'll come up with the print books too. You have to look for the audiobook version, but it's there. And the other option that people have is to go to www.voicesdivine.com, which is Hans Peterson's website, and he is selling both the download and the CDs from his website. So if somebody from abroad wanted to order something, then they can do it through Voices Divine or through the Baha'i Distribution Service. I suppose anybody can order from there as well. If you do the download, then you save on, uh, I guess, shipping costs and stuff like that. The download is cheaper. There's no shipping, and it's cheaper. Mm -hmm. I was actually planning when I first came up with this idea, it was going to be 
90% download, and I'll sell a few CDs here and there. It hasn't worked out that way. We're not, as a community, we're not ready for 100% download. Mm. We still like our hard molecules. <laughs> we like to, to have something in our hand for our money. So most of what I've been selling is CDs. So are your sales meeting your business plan expectations? Yes, they are. That's I had pretty good. modest expectations, though. Mm-hmm. I basically said if I sell over 100 CDs in the first three months, I'll be happy. Very good. Very good. I did. Excellent. So that was good. In fact, I just received my second, my first reorder from the Baha'i Distribution Service. So I've actually sold my second hundred as well. From the looks of it, this is uh, what you're going to be doing indefinitely, huh? Yes. It is my intention to continue on with this for a, as long as I possibly can. I, I love it. There are some parts I love more than others. But the nice thing about it is that it changes all the time. When you get into the intensive editing phase, it's kind of a crawl into a hole and disappear for a month sort of phase, and that's kind of tough. But pretty soon I'll be done with this, and then I will be able to work on designing the, the, the CD packaging, and that'll be fun. And I can start recording for my next project, and that'll be fun. You know, so there's lots of fun parts to it, and you never have to do anything for so long that you just absolutely hate it, <laughs> which is nice. Well, I wish you the best of luck in this endeavor. It sounds like an excellent service for folks that can only find the time to read when they're in the car or walking and those who can't read. So it seems like a great service. I hope so. That was a very big part of why I chose to do it. I wanted to find a way to support my family and humanity all at the same time. It was never a get-rich-quick scheme, that's for sure. <laughs> But I did have very pure intentions in starting it. Yeah, it does seem like a labor of love. It absolutely is. If it, yeah. if it was anything else, it would not have, I could not have sustained it for this long. Well, it was so nice talking to you, Leanne. It was very nice talking to you, Warren, and I, I look forward to meeting you someday, I'm sure, in this wonderful community of ours that we will run into each other eventually. I hope so. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Leanne Elif, creator of Baha'i Audiobooks. You can find links to her work, as well as a copy of this and other programs on my website, www.abahaiperspective.com. For the rest of the hour, I'll be playing excerpts from Leanne's current project, recording the Baha'i compilation, Divine Art of Living. She reads from selections discussing life's tests and difficulties, health and healing, and the next life. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Tests are benefits from God, for which we should thank Him. Grief and sorrow do not come to us by chance. They are sent to us by the divine mercy for our own perfecting. The mind and spirit of man advance when he is tried by suffering. The more the ground is plowed, the better the seed will grow, the better the harvest will be. Just as the plow furrows the earth deeply, purifying it of weeds and thistles, so suffering and tribulation free man from the petty affairs of this worldly life, 
until he arrives at a state of complete detachment. His attitude in this world will be that of divine happiness. Man is, so to speak, unripe. The heat of the fire of suffering will mature him. Look back to the times past, and you will find that the greatest men have suffered most. As to tests, these are inevitable. Hast thou not heard and read how there appeared trials from God in the days of Jesus and thereafter, and how the winds of tests became severe? Even the glorious Peter was not relieved from the claws of trials. He wavered, then he repented, and mourned the mourning of a bereaved one, and his lamentations reached the realms on high. Is it then possible to be saved from the trials of God? Nay, by the righteousness of the Lord, there is a great wisdom therein, of which no one is aware save the wise and knowing. Were it not for tests, pure gold could not be distinguished from the impure. Were it not for tests, the courageous could not be separated from the cowardly. Were it not for tests, the people of faithfulness could not be known from the disloyal. Were it not for tests, the intellectuals and the faculties of the scholars and great colleges would not develop. Were it not for tests, sparkling gems could not be known from worthless pebbles. Were it not for tests, nothing would progress in this contingent world. Were it not for tests, the fishermen could not be distinguished from Annas and Caiaphas, who occupied positions of honor and value. Were it not for tests, the face of Mary, the Magdalene, would not shed its light of steadfastness and certitude upon all horizons. These are some insights into the wisdom of tests, which we have unfolded unto thee, that thou mayest become cognizant of the mysteries of God in every cycle. Verily I pray God to illumine your faces as pure gold in the fire of tests. Health and Healing Joy gives us wings. In times of joy our strength is more vital, our intellect keener, and our understanding less clouded. We seem better able to cope with the world and to find our sphere of usefulness. But when sadness visits us we become weak, our strength leaves us, our comprehension is dim, and our intelligence veiled. There are two ways of healing sickness, material means and spiritual means. The first is by the treatment of physicians. The second consisteth in prayers offered by the spiritual ones to God and in turning to Him. Both means should be used and practiced. Illnesses which occur by reason of physical causes should be treated by doctors with medical remedies. Those which are due to spiritual causes disappear through spiritual means. Thus an illness caused by affliction, fear, nervous impressions will be healed more effectively by spiritual rather than by physical treatment. Hence both kinds of treatment should be followed. They are not contradictory. Therefore thou shouldst also accept physical remedies, inasmuch as these too have come from the mercy and favor of God, who hath revealed and made manifest medical science, so that his servants may profit from this kind of treatment also. Thou shouldst give equal attention to spiritual treatments, for they produce marvelous effects. Now if thou wishest to know the true remedy, which will heal man from all sickness, and will give him the health of the divine kingdom, know that it is the precepts and teachings of God. Focus thine attention upon them. 
Do not neglect medical treatment when it is necessary, but leave it off when health has been restored. Treat disease through diet, by preference, refraining from the use of drugs. And if you find what is required in a single herb, do not resort to a compounded medicament. Abstain from drugs when the health is good, but administer them when necessary. The Realm of Immortality To consider that after the death of the body the spirit perishes is like imagining that a bird in a cage will be destroyed if the cage is broken, though the bird has nothing to fear from the destruction of the cage. Our body is like the cage, and the spirit is like the bird. We see that without the cage this bird flies in the world of sleep. Therefore, if the cage becomes broken, the bird will continue and exist. Its feelings will be even more powerful, its perceptions greater, and its happiness increased. A friend asked, How should one look forward to death? Abdu'l-Bahá answered, How does one look forward to the goal of any journey, with hope and with expectation? It is even so at the end of this earthly journey. In the next world, man will find himself freed from many of the disabilities under which he now suffers. Those who have passed on through death have a sphere of their own. It is not removed from ours. Their work, the work of the kingdom, is ours. But it is sanctified from what we call time and place. Time with us is measured by the sun. When there is no more sunrise and no more sunset, that kind of time does not exist for man. Those who have ascended have different attributes from those who are still on earth, yet there is no real separation. In prayer, there is a mingling of station, a mingling of condition. Pray for them as they pray for you. When the human soul soareth out of this transient heap of dust and riseth into the world of God, then veils will fall away and verities will come to light and all things unknown before will be made clear, and hidden truths be understood. Consider how a being in the world of the womb was deaf of ear, and blind of eye, and mute of tongue, how he was bereft of any perceptions at all. But once, out of that world of darkness, he passed into this world of light. Then his eye saw, his ear heard, his tongue spoke. In the same way, once he hath hastened away from this mortal place into the kingdom of God, then he will be born in the spirit, then the eye of his perception will open, the ear of his soul will hearken, and all the truths of which he was ignorant before will be made plain and clear. Know thou for a certainty that in the divine worlds the spiritual beloved ones will recognize one another and will seek union with each other but a spiritual union. Likewise a love that one may have entertained for any one will not be forgotten in the world of the kingdom, nor wilt thou forget there the life that thou hadst in the material world. When I consider this calamity in another aspect, I am consoled by the realization that the worlds of God are infinite, that though they were deprived of this existence, they have other opportunities in the life beyond. Even as Christ has said, in my Father's house are many mansions. They were called away from the temporary and transferred to the eternal. They abandoned this material existence and entered the portals of the spiritual world. 
foregoing the pleasures and comforts of the earthly, they now partake of a joy and happiness far more abiding and real, for they have hastened to the kingdom of God. The mercy of God is infinite, and it is our duty to remember these departed souls in our prayers and supplications, that they may draw nearer and nearer to the source itself. These human conditions may be likened to the matrix of the mother from which a child is to be born into the spacious outer world. At first the infant finds it very difficult to reconcile itself to its new existence. It cries as if not wishing to be separated from its narrow abode, and imagining that life is restricted to that limited space. It is reluctant to leave its home, but nature forces it into this world. Having come into its new conditions, it finds that it has passed from darkness into a sphere of radiance. From gloomy and restricted surroundings it has been transferred to a spacious and delightful environment. Its nourishment was the blood of the mother. Now it finds delicious food to enjoy. Its new life is filled with brightness and beauty. It looks with wonder and delight upon the mountains, meadows, and fields of green, the rivers and fountains, the wonderful stars. It breathes the life-quickening atmosphere, and then it praises God for its release from the confinement of its former condition and attainment to the freedom of a new realm. This analogy expresses the relation of the temporal world to the life hereafter, the transition of the soul of man from darkness and uncertainty to the light and reality of the eternal kingdom. At first it is very difficult to welcome death, but after attaining its new condition the soul is grateful, for it has been released from the bondage of the limited to enjoy the liberties of the unlimited. It has been freed from a world of sorrow, grief, and trials to live in a world of unending bliss and joy. The phenomenal and physical have been abandoned in order that it may attain the opportunities of the ideal and spiritual. Therefore the souls of those who have passed away from earth and completed their span of mortal pilgrimage in the titanic disaster, have hastened to a world superior to this. They have soared away from these conditions of darkness and dim vision, into the realm of light. These are the only considerations which can comfort and console those whom they have left behind. O oh, ye too patient souls, your letter was received. The death of that beloved youth and his separation from you have caused the utmost sorrow and grief, for he winged his flight in the flower of his age and the bloom of his youth to the heavenly nest. But he hath been freed from this sorrow-stricken shelter, and hath turned his face toward the everlasting nest of the kingdom, and being delivered from a dark and narrow world, hath hastened to the sanctified realm of light, Therein lieth the consolation of our hearts. The inscrutable divine wisdom underlieth such heart-rending occurrences. It is as if a kind gardener transferreth a fresh and tender shrub from a confined place to a wide open area. This transfer is not the cause of the withering, the lessening, or the destruction of that shrub. Nay, on the contrary, it maketh it to grow and thrive, acquire freshness and delicacy become green and bear fruit. This hidden secret is well known to the gardener, but those souls who are unaware of this bounty suppose that the gardener, in his anger and wrath, hath uprooted the shrub. Yet to those who are aware, this concealed fact is manifest, 
and this predestined decree is considered a bounty. Do not feel grieved or disconsolate, therefore, at the ascension of that bird of faithfulness. Nay, under all circumstances pray for that youth, supplicating for him forgiveness and the elevation of his station. Peace and Unity In cycles gone by, though harmony was established, yet, owing to the absence of means, the unity of all mankind could not have been achieved. Continents remained widely divided. Nay, even among the peoples of one and the same continent, association and interchange of thought were well nigh impossible. Consequently, intercourse, understanding, and unity amongst all the peoples and kindreds of the earth were unattainable. In this day, however, means of communication have multiplied, and the five continents of the earth have virtually merged into one. And for everyone it is now easy to travel to any land, to associate and exchange views with its peoples, and to become familiar, through publications, with the conditions, the religious beliefs, and the thoughts of all men. In like manner all the members of the human family, whether peoples or governments, cities or villages, have become increasingly interdependent. For none is self-sufficiency any longer possible, inasmuch as political ties unite all peoples and nations, and the bonds of trade and industry, of agriculture and education, are being strengthened every day. Hence the unity of all mankind can in this day be achieved. Verily this is none other but one of the wonders of this wondrous age, this glorious century. Of this, past ages have been deprived, for this century, this century of light, hath been endowed with unique and unprecedented glory, power, and illumination. Hence the miraculous unfolding of a fresh marvel every day. Eventually it will be seen how bright its candles will burn in the assemblage of man. Behold how its light is now dawning upon the world's darkened horizon. The first candle is unity in the political realm, the early glimmerings of which can now be discerned. The second candle is unity of thought and world undertakings, the consummation of which will ere long be witnessed. The third candle is unity in freedom, which will surely come to pass. The fourth candle is unity in religion, which is the cornerstone of the foundation itself, and which by the power of God will be revealed in all its splendor. The fifth candle is the unity of nations, a unity which in this century will be securely established causing all the peoples of the world to regard themselves as citizens of one common fatherland. The sixth candle is unity of races, making of all that dwell on earth peoples and kindreds of one race. The seventh candle is unity of language, i.e. the choice of a universal tongue in which all peoples will be instructed and converse. Each and every one of these will inevitably come to pass, inasmuch as the power of the kingdom of God will aid and assist in their realization.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.